You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Well, hello, everyone. This is Al Fadi, and as always, uh, we are honored to have you here following us and uh, tuning in to this fabulous series about creating the Quran, which is named in honor of this book. And I'm going to grab this book for you and show you. Uh, the book is by Dr. Stephen Shoemaker. This is it right here. It's called Creating the Quran. And myself and Dr. Jay Smith, who is with me here in studio, we've been unpacking a lot of material out of this amazing book, scholarly book, of course. And we are highlighting for you the fact that Dr. Shoemaker, who is quoting other scholars, there is something in their conclusions related to the origin of the Quran and Islam altogether. Last time we talked about, for instance, Mecca or the Mecca dilemma. This time I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Hijaz region where Mecca and Yathrib and other prominent cities exist. With me here, of course, to discuss all of this is our dear brother, Dr. Jay Smith. Dr. Jay, welcome back as always. Thanks for having me. Good to be back. Now we're moving into the wider area, not just Mecca. We're asking about the bigger area of Central Arabia. Uh, And the scholars do have opinions on this. Haunting refers to this uh, in his book in 2018, which has just come out not too long ago. And I'm going to quote what he says, because he says that there have, that even the Islamic traditions cha- say that there was a change, uh, that the text was changed, and that the, what we have today is not the original Quran. So that suggests that something was happening at a later. But let's just see what he says here. Concerning when the Quran was entirely written, uh, the Islamic tradition's own account of the early history of the Quran tells us of the existence and destruction to various texts. We know this. We've done this in a previous episode. We talked about Al-Buhari and Sahih Muslim and Ibn Daud and Tirmidhi, where they talk about parts of the Quran have been lost. Some have been changed. Others have been deleted. We even talk about the reference uh, to parts of it have been eaten by the goat, uh, the, the reference to uh, that the, the, the you have to suckle, a woman has to suckle a male when she comes to visit him in her house. So these are well known within the Islamic traditions. That's what Adi is referring to. If this is so, and they're admitting this in the early centuries, ninth and 10th century here, the Islamic tradition's own account of the early history of the Quran tells us of the existence, destruction to variant texts. It talks about, Al-Buhari refers to this in volume 6, hadith number 509, especially hadith number 510, where um, Uthman burns, completely burns manuscripts that don't agree with the Qurayshi text that he has commissioned, uh, he has commissioned Zaid ibn Tabi to write. Acknowledge that the text of the Quran as we have it bears no relation to, to the order in which it was revealed to Muhammad. 
It is implicit, therefore, he says, that the Quran would look rather different if it had been compiled and put into order by the Prophet himself. So what he's saying is it's obvious that there has been a manipulation, even though even the traditions admit this, that there has been changes, deletions, accretions, corruptions, and also burnings. If that is the case, then folks, why are we even disputing this since we need to question this from their own traditions? Schumacher even goes on one step further, but he wants to then talk about what he had said earlier about Mecca. He then broadens to the whole problem of the Hijaz. And he's saying that, hold on a minute, there was no literacy at that time. The only material that we have from that period is oral. And this is what he says. Concerning the linguistic history of ancient Arabia, according to the most recent and authoritative scholarship on this subject, the cultures of both Mecca and, and Yathrib, Yathrib is the name that was given before Medina, that's the more modern name, but Medina just means city, as well as the surrounding settlements of pre-Islamic Hijaz, were, despite the existence of various systems of writing, fundamentally non-literate at all. No literature at that time. This means that insofar as we seek to understand the Quran, we must at the same time recognize its status as a fundamentally oral text that developed within a broader cultural context that also was fundamentally oral. I'm going to get back to orality later on, but I'm introducing that at this stage because Shoemaker is going to talk quite a bit about orality. Nonetheless, what you see what he's saying. There is no literate, literature, literate, literist or literal background this early, that far south. Well, if you only have a few hundred people living there anyways, and you don't even have a script yet, because the script that you would have used would have been Aramaic, Syro-Aramaic, uh, uh, Nabataean Aramaic, which would be Jordan and Syria, and even that is only co- controlled by the Christians, and there are no Christians in the Hijaz. You can see that why there's no literature. And you remember, these are Bedouins. These are people who would not have any need for literature because they're always moving, and they're... A lot of oral, yes, a lot of orality. They're singing their songs. They're singing their praises. And they're passing down their traditions orally. Oral tradition is quite rampant in that area. That we do understand, and that's what Shoemaker is saying. But he continues, and he says, The 7th century Hijaz, literacy in the early 7th century Hijaz, was in fact extremely rare and almost completely unknown. To such a degree that we must conceive that the formation of Muhammad's new religious movement and its sacred text within a context that was non-literate and fundamentally oral. Okay, half of that I agree with, the other half I don't. You can see where I'm going to go with this because you know where I come from. He's already assuming that Muhammad has something to do with this. I think that he's got a problem here, but we'll, let's hold that to a side for now. We'll come back to that at a later time. So what did exist? What exactly was there? Was there any literature? Yes, there was. And what is it? Rock inscriptions, not texts on a page. There are no manuscripts. There's no parchment. Remember when we talked about parchment? Parchment are animal skins. You have to be wealthy. You have to be rich. You have to be an emperor. You have to be a caliph. You have to be a bishop in a monastery to be able to start using parchment because each page takes parts of an animal skin, and that only the Christians had at that time. And you had to be, you, it takes an awful lot of animal skins to write anything as size of the Quran, which is about the size of our New Testament. Mm-hmm. So he was saying the writing that did exist was used primarily for recreation. And what it is, we find it, is primarily the form of graffiti on rocks. Many times the graffiti was prayers. 
uh, Ilke Lindstad, who we talked about earlier in one of our earlier uh, episodes. We talked about Ilke Lindstad, who's done the best work between 640 and 740. So 640 would be after Muhammad's death, immediately after Muhammad, if Muhammad had lived, up until the, just the end of the Umayyad dynasty. So it includes almost the, all of the entirety of the Umayyad dynasty. He looked at all the inscriptions, and he noticed all, immediately that in the 7th century, all of the inscriptions are way up in the north, in what is today Syria, what is today Jordan, what is today Lebanon, and then over in the east, uh, what is today Iraq, and what is today Iran. That's where the inscriptions are. There are some inscriptions down in the south, in Yemen. Nothing whatsoever in the Hejaz, which makes sense because there's not, first of all, there's just not any literature at that time. They're not literate. Why would they be even chiseling out on the rocks something that they can't even do? If that were the case, then they would be quite literate. They would, they, they would sing their stories. They would tell their stories. They would pass it on tradition to uh, 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 one generation after another, that makes sense, but not a scripture and certainly nothing of this size or this sophistication, not that far south. Amen. Amen. I mean, it's it's really interesting. And I mean, he, he raises up a lot of excellent points here. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, even Islam claims that uh, when Islam came into being, it was called the age of ignorance. I mean, you're dealing with obviously people that uh, had no knowledge of things and so on and so forth. So uh, it makes no sense to all of a sudden discover that, oh, they were sophisticated in writing and sophisticated in, uh, 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 you know, ornamentation and sophisticated in so many other things. No, absolutely. You've got to, and that's why we have always said, if you're going to talk about history, talk about history on the ground. Show me the evidence. We've always said this. Uh, we've said, you've said it. I demand this of my sin sifters. Keep to the evidence on the ground. Put out suppositions but be able to support it historically. Otherwise, you're just talking hot air. And we have to be careful that we don't do that. We put out uh, white papers, don't we? And a lot of the white papers are always supported by historical evidence. And I've said categorically, when we're talking about the three major categories, the book, the man, and the place, the book, the Quran, the man, Muhammad, and the place, Mecca, for heaven's sakes, don't waste my time with 9th and 10th century material redacted back onto the 7th century. Tell me what was happening in those three areas in the 7th century. Then we have a discussion. So what are we talking about next? Well, then if this is the case, if it couldn't have happened in Mecca, if it couldn't have happened in Medina, if it couldn't happen in the Hijaz, where then do they say the Quran actually was written? I want to see what they come to. They do have conclusions. That's next. And that's a fair question to ask. Thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining us. This is Al-Fadi over and out. God bless. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAinternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. We've asked a question about Mecca. We've asked a question about Hijaz. Now we need to ask the question about, so where did the Quran come from? And with me here to answer this question is our dear brother, Dr. J. Smith. Dr. J., so in light of everything that we've shared so far, quotations and so on and so forth concerning, uh, you know, Mecca, its prominence or lack of Hijaz and issues in there. So what do these scholars say about the origin 
of the Quran. Well, obviously, they pretty much uh, refused to accept that it's were originated in a place called Mecca or Medina, the Hejaz. So where are they going to place it? Where would you think they placed it? Before we get into their quotations, before we get into their view, where would you think they placed it? Teman, Khaybar, uh, Petra, the Gulf of Aqaba, Najran, Sana, Aden. Where would you place? Where do you think they're going to place it? Yeah, you know, I'm taking a wild guess. Uh, it's possible that they still place it in Mecca. In Mecca. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's see if he's correct. Do you think he's correct? Do you think that after everything you've heard, after everything he's heard, he still thinks it's in Mecca? Come on. Can you see? I mean, I personally would place it north, but I'm saying, where did they place it? Ah, yeah. let's see what they do. So let's go yeah. back and let's go to Shoemaker. This is on page uh, 136, 137. So we're still on this great book that we're really pushing, and we would like you to buy it. Go to Amazon.com. Uh, com. It just came out a few months ago in 2022, August. Now, he says, the term Old Hijaz, we, we call it the Old Hijaz, may be a mis- misnomer, as this corpus of writing is not located in the Hijaz area. Okay, we, that's pretty clear from everything we've seen in the previous episodes. Mm-hmm. Instead, he continues, the witness to this dialect or overwhelmingly found in the Levant. Now, the Levant... Where do you think Levant is? Tell our good friends, what, where is that? Well, that would be uh, north, of course, of the Arabian Peninsula. That would include areas like the uh, Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, Syria, uh, you know, parts of Iraq, you know. So that's, that's pretty much what we're calling the Levant. You can even argue that Israel is included in that region. What is today Israel? What is today Syria? What is today Jordan? What is today and Iraq? Jordan, of course. Yeah. yeah. Just so people don't get, I say, you don't know what you're talking about because those places didn't even exist in the seventh. Yes, we know. We know that. We're trying to help you on a map today. So on a map today, these places, Syria, of course, in the north, uh, to the west of that would be Lebanon and and and, uh, and what is today Israel, and then of course Jordan and then Iraq and Iran or the Sassan area over here. That's what he's saying. So the Levant is that area. Uh, up in the north, but it's mostly in Jordan and Syria. So that's where he's in. The, the, he says the the witness to this dialect are over and we found up there. Soon after this region came under the dominion of Muhammad's followers. Now, he's still claiming these are Muhammad's followers. The area is in northern Arabia. Dedan would be a much better fit. And Dedan is what it would, would be in the Levant. That is in Jordan. That is up in the north. Uh, then Mecca and the central Hejaz for the script found in the Quran, because we know it's Nabataean Aramaic. He, well, the person you need to go to, and he does quote him, and, and this is Al-Jalad. Al-Jalad, what do you know about Al-Jalad? Well, I mean, uh, what I know based on my exposure to some of his uh, work is that he really focuses on inscriptions. Yeah. I would call him probably uh, uh, the, the world authority when it comes on the Arabic inscriptions yeah. in that region. Your good friend Mark Dury, Dr. Mark Dury, actually uses him and employs him yeah, yeah. for his book on this. And he's just done a, a, a great article on early chronic Arabic. And he, he said he quotes Al-Jalad in the inscriptions he's found. And the inscriptions Al-Jalad found are way up north in what is today Jordan, in mm-hmm. that part of the world. And he says this. Uh, actually, it's, it's Shoemaker quoting Al-Jalad. Al-Jalad has found a potential witness to an old Hijazi dialect from the 7th century CE, which comes from a single 
10-word funerary inscription from Dedan, one of the northern oasis towns that is also mentioned several times in the Hebrew Bible. So no surprise there that they're putting it up further north. Why? Well, Shoemakers gives three distinctive features that Jalad refers to. And he says, this old Hijazi dialect has three distinguishing features. Number one, a distinctive form of what they call the relative pronoun. Uh, Number two, a distinctive form of the distal demonstrative. And number three, the use of the verbal construction on yaf'ala, in circumstances where other dialects would use an infinite form. Uh, we also, uh, Jalad goes on beyond that. When, from uh, Jalad, as we know, when we talked about him, he also refers to the Alaf Maksur and Tar uh, Marbuta. These are the ending of words that do not, they're right through the Quran. And of course, the definite article itself, Al. So these are right through the Quran. Those did not exist in the Sabaic Arabic that, that mm-hmm. would have been used in the Hijaz. Mm-hmm. The Sabaic Arabic from the Sabine uh, material way down in Yemen, that's the kind of Arabic they would have used in that era. We're going to talk about that in another upcoming episode. So it's very clear from what Jalad is saying is the, this, uh, these demonstrative, uh, uh, distal demonstratives and also the relative pronouns, these do not fit in the central part of Arabia. They all fit way up in the north, up in what is today uh, Jordan, what is today Syria, that area of the world. So what Shoemaker then comes to a conclusion on this, and he does this in page 146 and 147 in his book. And uh, it's a long conclusion. Let me just go ahead and read it so that you can understand it, because it's important that we do look at it. And he says this, The most probable circumstances for understanding the early history of the Quranic text leads to the conclusion that its contents circulated for a significant period of time in the absence of any written collection of Muhammad's teaching. The earliest teachings were passed down orally, and then later on uh, were then written as they had come to remember them, within a broader context of the sectarian milieu of the late ancient Near East. Now, what he's saying is, this makes sense. You need to look and see the sectarian milieu. You need to look at the sects the groups that were actually introduced, that were actually d- discussing this, that were existed at that time. And the Quran is full of these sectarian groups. Hot, uh, Wands, uh, Wandsboro, he wrote a book on the sectarian milieu just on this very point. So Shoemaker is uh, mimicking what Wandsboro said much earlier in the 1970s. No doubt, Shoemaker continues, these memories of Muhammad's teaching continued to change and grow even after they had begun to be written down. This is not at all uncommon, especially at the time when a community is making the shift from orality to writing. He's going to talk about this later, and uh, we're going to, so I'm not going to say too much more on that. The Quran, therefore, he says, only achieved its invariable archetypal form sometime around the turn of the 8th century. The circumstances of extended oral transmission and the existence of rival versions of the Quran. So he's talking about different codices. He's talking about rival codices. He's talking about written texts. Established a very high likelihood that the memories of Muhammad, now he's, he's saying these memories would have been oral at some time written down, but written in different with different memories. You have a memory, I have a memory, someone else has a memory, you write it in different codices, they do not agree. So he's talking about these codices. Muhammad's teachings would have changed significantly as they got written down during the period between his death and the establishment of the now canonical version. Now, I, 
That's a mouthful what he's saying there. But what he's basically pointing to is when you have this memory that's coming out of, he says, the Hejaz, when you have this this memory, this memory then gets starting to be written down. But of course, by the time these people have moved up to the north, they're moving into different sections. They're and they're creating different sectarian groups, and they're reflecting their different sectarian groups. So therefore, different codices start to be created. Well, these codices do not parallel each other, so something had to be done to bring down a canonical text. He points that to Al-Hajjaj and Abdul Malik in the turn of the century into the 8th century. I'm going to bring up something, and this is fascinating, because I, I, and while I agree that this is one possible scenario, he's missing a huge point here. And I, I, it's so glaring to me, it was so frustrating to me, that I'm going to wait before I get into that for the next episode, because I want to look at Schumacher and say, uh, you've got a problem here, Schumacher, not Schumacher, that's the German pronunciation. You've got a difficulty that you need to help me with, because there's a uh, red flags flying all over the place. But that's for the next episode when we get into that. Yeah. I mean, he obviously still um, uh, believes in the existence of Muhammad at that time. That's what he's saying. Mm-hmm. A character by the name of Muhammad exists in the 7th century. His reading, uh, his his teachings are being uh, collected and uh, sometimes memorized or written. And then over the course of time, uh, this writing was being standardized at, as we approach the 8th century. Well, hold on to that. Hold on to that. Do you see any problems with that? What are I'm saying, they... that's what he seems to be uh, insinuating, an existence of a character by the name Muhammad. Okay. In the seventh century, he's not seeing it as if there is a problem with the origin of the Quran, then you should really, by virtue, and Mecca, by virtue, you can say there's a problem about the man. In the next episode, I'm going to start quoting from a French scholar named Guillaume D, because he's going to shut down Shoemaker on this one point. But let's wait and see what he has to say. All right. I still like Shoemaker, and I like his book, regardless of what Jay thinks about this I love Shoemaker, but he does have some problems, and that's what we're going to talk about next. We're doing really peer review. That's all we're doing. And I hope really Dr. Shoemaker looks at this as a way of us, especially myself and from my background, that we are uh, helping strengthen uh, uh, his hypothesis, not attacking it in any way. And I'm hoping that one time in the future, maybe he would agree to join us via Zoom or or at least uh, be with us uh, one way or another. And we extend our invitation to him. And I hope I can find a way to reach out to him uh, to extend this invitation in person. Again, thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Until next episode, have a blessed day.
You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ.